When we see human rights abuses in other countries, we don't say, well, that's only happening in the Northwest Quadrant. We just say that country has human rights abuses issues. Welcome to On Assignment, the podcast that brings you conversations with award-winning journalists from inside Pulitzer Hall here at Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department here, and I am joined, as always, by my colleague, Lisa Cohen, who runs the DuPont Awards and is going to tell us about what we're going to hear today. Hi, Abby. Hey, Lisa. Today, we have something from out of the vault. It's not that old. It's just from last year. We recorded a conversation with the extraordinarily talented author and journalist, Isabel Wilkerson, who wrote the critically acclaimed and much-honored book, The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. Yes, we had the great fortune to have Isabel in New York back in May when we were celebrating the 20th anniversary of our book prize here at Columbia. It's the J. Anthony Lucas Prize Project, which The Warmth of Other Suns was honored by them with the Linton History Prize back in 2011. And this book was a real monumental undertaking, you may recall, um, from when it came out back then. Uh, It traces the 8 million people who moved from the South up to the North and West over the course of the 20th century. Right. And it sounded as if she interviewed almost all of the 8 million people, but she ended up focusing on three main characters. And we'll hear more about that. The Lucas Prizes are nonfiction writing awards. They're named after the beloved author J. Anthony Lucas who may be best known for his tour de force work about desegregation in Boston. It was called Common Ground. We were thrilled to host Isabel here at the school, and our dean, Steve Call, moderated the conversation at the event for students. They spoke about all that went into Isabel's book, which I believe she worked on over the course of 15 years. It's kind of amazing. Uh, They talked about her earlier career as a newspaper reporter at the New York Times, where she won a Pulitzer Prize, and why her book is more timely now than ever. So, without further ado, here's award-winning author Isabel Wilkerson speaking with Dean Steve Call at Columbia from May of 2018. And, as usual, this is an edited version of the conversation. We're really thrilled to have you here to talk about the craft and the subject matter. Your methodology involved extraordinary interviewing before you uh, found the narrative that you wrote. So. Just tell us what you did to try to get a grip on this social history and then how the broad interviewing that you did led to the choices that end up in the book, because it's really a story of three people as well as the larger migration. Well, one of the choices that I had was I could have spent a lot of time with the archives looking at what had been written about what people were doing in Los Angeles in the 1930s or something, but I decided that I would I would go out to the people first because there was this race against the clock because the people were getting up in years and it's an occupational hazard for anyone working with the, that generation that they're going to get sick, they may pass away, you could lose them, and that is in fact what I had to deal with in the process of researching and working on this book. So what I ended up doing was actually I had auditioned people for the role of being a protagonist <laughs> in my book. So I went to the places where senior citizens would be and talked to as many of them as I could in those spaces. So there actually are places where uh, there are actually AARP meetings on the south side of Chicago. There are churches 
here, Baptist churches here in, in New York where everybody, or certainly the older people, are all from South Carolina. So I went to those places and it took quite a bit of time, about a year and a half of just surveying and, and interviewing people. Then I narrowed it down to about 30 people, any one of whom could have been the three main characters. I was looking for a combination of factors to make this narrative work. I knew for one thing that there needed to be a range of socioeconomic circumstances from which they had come. I knew that there needed to be a range of precipitating factors and or motivations that drove them to make the decisions that they had made. I also knew that there was going to be, need to be diversity of, of gender, clearly, and of, in the end, one of the singular things that became most important to me was very strong personalities or characters, people who would stand out on the page, so that when you were on the page with George, you knew you were on the page with him. When you were on the page with Ida Mae, you knew this was her story. And then when you were with Dr. Foster, you absolutely, positively would know you were on the page with him because he was such a character. And then. Finally, in terms of the choices, I, I was also looking at humor, a sense of humor, because this, I didn't know the full story when I chose them, so I, it's a great leap of faith when you do this kind of work and you're setting about working on a narrative that's going to take you more time than you ever think it will, and you're putting your faith in the idea that these people that you settle down with will ultimately have the story that will make the journey ha to having been worth it. And I knew that one of the things I was looking for would be a sense of humor, a sense of something that would guide them and me, and thus the reader, through these difficult, difficult passages. You had been a professional feature writer for many years before you embarked on this epic. <laughs> uh, so you had been practicing craft about immersion and character and where humor lies, and you won a Pulitzer for such work even before you embarked on this book. But a book length, project has its own structural challenges and this is such um, a fully realized structure. I'm assuming that there were models that you had in your head, books that you had studied or reverse engineered or read and been inspired by or, or in fiction or nonfiction. I One of the challenges with the structure of this book was that in most narratives you expect the protagonist to meet, to intersect to know one another at some point. That was not going to happen with this. Partly, I mean, I actually, I mean, obviously they didn't know each other because they were in different states, had been part of different migration streams, so there was not the natural way for them to have met. That was just part of the reality. But I, in the process of, of interviewing them, I mean, I actually would try to see if there'd be a way that I could get them to meet. I would mention to, <laughs> to them. You know, I wasn't going to try to make something happen. You know, right. it's the first directive, right, absolutely. Right. Prime, prime directive. <laughs> but if they were interested, I would have made it, made it possible. Clearly, they had gone through similar experiences. As a writer of this book, I view them as one. I, I view them as a single character on some level, all representing some aspect of the same phenomenon. But when I mentioned just the idea of other people that I was interviewing. Those of you who've done this work may not be surprised, but 
they were not interested in the least in meeting one another. In fact, not only were they not interested, they felt as if I was in, in some ways cheating on them by talking with other people. They had this sense that this, that, you know, clearly because when I was with them, I was fully with them. I was hearing their stories. I was interested in their stories. I was going with them to the places where they had worked, the, you know, meeting with the friends that they knew. I was their person. So uh, quickly I realized that there was no way that that was going to happen. There would be no way that these three people would ever meet. So then that meant that it became uh, a narrative writing challenge, a structural challenge. So I decided that what I was going to do was have the, the, the stories rotate over time. I was gonna have them rotate like the wheels of a train. And you would go with Ida Mae, and then you would see George, and then you would go to Robert. And it'd be Ida Mae, George, Robert. Ida Mae, George, Robert. And it would take a while for the reader to maybe pick up on this pattern, but then once they pick up on it, then they would be primed. Their mind would be ready for, we see what Ida Mae is doing, now it's time to check in with George and what he's doing. So stage of life was the driver, not the chronology because they were doing things in different years. They were born in different years, they left the South in different years, they arrived in the, the North or West in different years, so they were getting married in different years. So what I decided to do was, you are going to be with them at whatever stage of life the book is having you focus on at that time. So they're all teenagers at the same time, they all are getting married at the same time, even though that would have been different years and different decades, they're all leaving the South at the same time. And I think at a certain point, you begin to, the eye begins to pay less attention to the year, Chickasaw County, 1937. And they just look, this is Ida May, and she's getting ready to do something. And the next time we see George, he's gonna be doing, he's gonna be at the same spot, trying to figure out what he's going to do. And I felt that the emotional, psychological state of the reader at that moment was more important than whatever the date was or the location might be for them at that time. And the response that I've gotten is that it actually worked. Well, it worked so well, I <laughs> it worked so well I didn't even notice it, to, to tell you the truth. And, you know, in the early going of even conceiving of this book, my inspiration had been film, actually. The works of Robert Altman and these films in which characters are experiencing this parallel existence but they're not meeting and that the fact is that it can work not only work but it's it's a form of narrative storytelling and then in terms of actually written work I took a tremendous amount of inspiration and solace from the grapes of wrath because he was dealing with a migration that occurred contemporaneously with the early decades of the great migration uh, he got inside the hopes and the wishes and the dreams and the fears of the people that, whose story he was telling. And he also has interchapters in which he steps back and tells the larger story. He sets the scene for what else is going on in their world at the time that they are making this great trek. And so those were the inspirations for how to do this. That makes all the sense in the world now. Because when I, w I read this when it came out and I had the joy of rereading it in preparation for today. And the thing that I didn't remember about it was just how lovely the intervals are. You know, they're, they're very short. Yes, the weaving among the three, you can imagine that as a formal structure, but then there are these other intervals about your family, your own family's migration, and also 
contextual histories. So how much of that shaped, first of all, the use of your own family from time to time to contextualize these stories, and then the mustering of social history as well, because it's quite straightforward. You're quoting from documents and studies from time to time. It, it, it doesn't feel like homework, but it's there to really give you a sense of broader context. So how much of that did you see going in, and how much did you have to discover in the writing? And with your three principal narratives, how much um, of their own archive w versus their recollections was available to support, uh, support your research? Well, that was the reason why I did so many interviews with other people in their orbit. One fascinating thing about all of them is that these people were ordinary people coming of age in the early to mid 20th century. They were not famous. They were living their lives, and yet each one of them was in a newspaper. Something that they had done had been recorded somehow, which is fascinating given that they were ordinary people, and particularly the survivors of Jim Crow who had not done the kinds of things that one would normally uh, expect to get one in the newspaper. One of the things that I ended up having to do was to, George had spoken about all of the tremendous threats and, and violence that he was facing trying to organize people in the citrus groves in the 1940s Florida. And, and after I got to the point of looking into the archives, I found that there were, was tremendous literature from the citrus growers who were complaining about the organizing that was going on, that there was some strike, there was an outbreak of striking in this part of Lake County or Orange County or wherever it might have been. And so there, there ended up being validation, confirmation that I could then access once the ethnography portion had ended. And just one more craft question. At the graduate school with students, we talk about narrative writing, but usually in a 2,500 to maybe 5,000 word format. We look at structure and sections and making transitions and beginnings and endings, chronology, all things that you had perfected as a newspaper feature writer before you started on this project. But as you started writing something that became probably 120, 150,000 words, what did you have to stretch yourself to master at book length that you hadn't mastered as a newspaper feature writer? It can be so daunting and overwhelming if you have to think about 100,000 words in front of you. And so you don't think about the 100,000 <laughs> words. You think about the 2,000 words that you want to get done today. And that's one way that I approached it in small portions. But the bigger challenge was the structure that was going to be the foundation. They never met. They were three different people that migrated out of three different parts of the South to three different cities in the United States over the course of three decades. So the bigger challenge to me was how to make the storyline follow, flow for the reader. So one way of doing it would be what Siebold does in The Emigrants, in which you just have one person's story, you go from beginning to end of that person's story, and then you start with the second person and then the third person. I immediately decided that was not what I wanted to do. Okay, um, enough of craft. <laughs> so what about this messed up world of ours? So you've been talking about um, the book over the last couple of years. How do the themes that you 
uh, elucidated in this narrative uh, resonate for you in the America we're in and here in 2018? Well, you know, the book has been out for eight years and I've been on the road the entire time. And a lot of people look at this book as a work of history until they turn on the news. And then they can see the parallels unfolding before our very eyes. And so in that respect, the book has remained, you know, sort of urgently relevant in ways that might not have been imagined at the time that I was working on it. I certainly did not anticipate that it would have this shelf life that it's had as a result of its connection to things that are going on right now. It gives you a sense of the DNA that we have all inherited, that we are dealing with. One of the decisions that I made in working, writing this is that I chose not to use the word racism in the book. Because for one thing, you know, a hallmark of writing is to show and not tell. I'm not going to tell you what it is that the people were up against. But I also felt at a certain point that it was an, an inaccurate word. I ended up with the word that anthropologists of the day who had gone to the South in 1930s and had looked at and studied and done ethnographies of it. And the term that they used was caste system. And caste system seemed to be a fresh and accurate way to describe the infrastructure that was present that enforced and defined the actions of anyone living in that society at that time. It was so rigidly enforced and delineated that it was actually against the law for a black person and a white person, for example, to play checkers together in Birmingham. You could go to jail if you were caught doing that. So it was so much more than just the water fountains and the restrooms. And the stakes were so incredibly high that there were people who lost their lives in a lynching for the accusation of having stolen 75 cents or a mule or a hog, something that seemed, seemed so minor but that was such viewed as such a breach of the caste system that that the enforcement went into place in order to have a lynching of these people and that speaks to they, these are not exact parallels but there is a thread that runs to our current era in which african americans are being policed in you know for being at a starbucks we have seen you know the, the case of a, of a woman who was wrestled to the ground, essentially assaulted by police officers for asking for utensils at a Waffle House, which is just shocking, the, little, the littlest things for which the most extreme aspects of, of enforcement are called to bear. And that is a, a through line in some ways of the continuing effect of what was originally a formal caste system, but the spirit of which we still see active today. One of the purposes of the lynchings was to affirm, define who could do what in that caste system, but also to be a, a lesson for all people in that caste system. So that the largest number of people, I mean there were thousands of people who would come to the, see these ritualized tortures and, and mutilations and ultimately killings of people in the lowest caste, people whose value to the society was clearly shown to be diminished and of little value. And we are in some ways experiencing the same psychological normalization of the diminishment of, of the value of black lives. We in this day and time are actually seeing American citizens being killed before our very eyes on video, you know, Philando Castile, Eric Garner, John Crawford in, in, uh, at the Walmart in, in Ohio. We are being exposed to literally violence and, and killing of, of citizens, of American citizens before our very eyes. And as with the large numbers of people who were summoned to see these lynchings in the Jim Crow era, 
these current day deaths are being witnessed and viewed by millions of people, far more than the time of the lynching era. So I think that we have to contemplate and think about the impact that this has on us as a people, as a country, as a species, to be exposed to actual human beings, American citizens who are, who are dying before our very eyes and the fear of normalizing this and numbing ourselves to the death of our fellow citizens. And that's what I see as one of the through lines through both the history that I've written about and our current day. Oh my, that's very powerful. So a phrase like caste system allows us to talk about structural racism, a fresher way to say structural racism. And you live in Atlanta. Just in the last month, Brian Stevenson opened this lynching memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. Your whole narrative uh, is about fleeing structural racism in the Jim Crow era for the ambiguous settings of Los Angeles and the industrialized North and, and even Harlem. So what are your notes uh, today about, as an Atlanta citizen, um, about the changes in structural racism in the North and South in the last, since the migration ended in 1970? How should we think about that? Well, the people of the Great Migration, those that I spoke with, they spoke of the places that they had arrived, the receiving stations of the Great Migration as James Crow, James Crow in the North. <laughs> and they had to negotiate and find a way to navigate a world in which things were not as overt, not as life-threatening in the ways that it had been with the, the lynchings that they you know, experienced and, and other ways, other aspects of violence that they lived with every day in the South. But they had to find a way to deal with the, what's called, you know, de facto segregation and, and all that that meant in the North. And how we see that playing out today is that, sadly, it is in the North where these cases of death at the hands, African Americans dying at the hands of police officers, the dramatic cases are occurring actually in the North. Eric Garner, Philando Castile, Tamir Rice, John Crawford, the, the cases that, are, that have gotten so much attention have been occurring in the North, the places of refuge for the ancestors of the people who are being attacked and being killed in the current day. And I think it's important to note that where there have been prosecutions, they've been more successful in the South than they have been in the North. So I think that calls upon the places in the North that have heralded progressivism and openness to really contemplate and search uh, ourselves to be able to figure out what is it that has not been addressed. Clearly there is a tremendous, tremendous problem. Clearly there is a dissonance in the way people profess to be open-minded and different, and yet these things are happening, and they're happening uh, in, in the North and the West. You know, when we see human rights abuses in other countries, we don't say, well, that's only happening in the Northwest quadrant of that country. <laughs> we just say that country has human rights abuses issues. And the same goes for our own country. When these things are happening, and the fear is that we're growing inured to human rights abuses that are happening in our own country, we need to search ourselves and recognize that we are not immune. We are part of a species that has shown that it's capable of tremendous harm and violence toward marginalized people all over the world, and that we are not immune to that here in our own country. So as I get ready to open it to the audience, 
some graduate students here who are getting ready for celebration next week and to go off into the world. And you know, obviously you were able to create a life in journalism and letters of great depth and resonance. But you didn't just walk into that. Uh, you earned it over a long period of time, made some choices early on in your career, somehow figured out how to get to stories that mattered, but doing so in the context of institutions that might not always be interested in those stories from day to day. Um, so what's your, what's your graduation season advice oh to goodness. our young journalists <laughs> about how to, how to get to where you are in terms of the, you know, the depth and the, the relevance and the integrity of, of the subject matter you're working with? I would say based on my own experience to know your strength and pursue it and stick with it because I became very clear that there were many things that I might have done at the times that I enjoyed doing. I actually was, I ended up being able to do some political reporting, uh, but I realized that there are people who lived and breathed that. That was all that they, they woke up in the morning thinking about that. I did pretty well at it. I realized that that was not what my strength was. When you discover what your strength is, you have no competition. You are your only competition. The question is, how can you be the best that you know you can be? And that was what I chose to do. I chose to recognize what I uniquely could do, what my strength was, and to build on it and to focus in on that. And then that meant that basically I had a lane all to myself. And that's what I chose to do. That's how I saw it. That's great. So let me invite uh, questions from the floor. Tell us about the tough moments of writing this book. You say 1,200 interviews, 15 years. At your lowest point in the journey, how did you, or you know, what kept you going? And also, how did you organize 1,200 stories? I mean, did you have a chart on the wall? What was your system for that's that? A, that's Just, a great question. You, you do want me to go to the lowest point. Well, <laughs> to inspire the rest of us to keep going. There's no question that the lowest point was when, you know, the first person died and then shortly thereafter the second person died. And I literally did not know if I was going to be able to recover and be able to even continue, you know, include this person in the book at all. And as long as it was taking me, it was going to take me even longer, longer than I could even imagine. So to have to pick myself up again and try to figure out what to do. You know, over the course of spending time with these people, interviewing does not capture what happens in this kind of work. It's, it's embeddedness, it's ethnography, it's being with them, sometimes just sitting with them or driving with them. Some of the most incredible stories were told as I was just, you know, driving with Ida Mae through the back roads of Mississippi to try to get to her former sis her sister-in-law's double-wide trailer in Chickasaw County, Mississippi. And so it, this was not simply you know, Q&A with somebody over the course of an afternoon. This was a in deep investment of time, energy, emotion into the lives of the people. And so when, you, when I lost them, I mean, it was a tremendous loss on many, many levels, not just in terms of the work. And there were so many sad moments where I, you know, I would make a trip at great expense and, and logistical organization in order to get out to California to see Dr. Foster, for example, and, and I would get there and he'd be in the hospital and he'd be hooked up to machines and there was no way that whatever I had in mind for, you know, filling in this part of his life that we hadn't gotten to the last time, there was none of that was going to happen. It was, I was, it was there uh, that I would just be sitting with him and being with him. 
but it was necessary and central to my connection to him. There's a kind of spiritual connection that you end up having with people when you spend this much time with them. There is almost an opportunity to uh, be so connected with them that you almost embody what they, what they represent. So in order to tell an, a deeply researched narrative that connects to that person's experience and then will be so compelling that a reader will feel that person's experience. You know, I often say that you know, our work is not complete until it reaches its audience until it had made itself out into the world and the people who were part of this story. Not just the people who I'd interviewed, but the people who'd experienced this phenomenon. What was their response going to be? And it was, you know, one of the challenges we had mentioned was that the people did not want to talk. One reason why I interviewed 1,200 people was because there were so many people who were only willing to talk about maybe one aspect of their lives but not wanting to go beyond that point. It was like a post-traumatic stress that the people were recovering from and they did not want to talk about it. If you talk to the uh, children and grandchildren of the people who are part of the Great Migration, you will find, you hear it over and over again, they won't talk to me, my grandmother will not say anything, she simply will not talk. It's as if it never happened, that was a long time ago. So that was one of the things that I was having to overcome, so it required so much time to spend with them and then the real test was going to be what was going to be re the response of the people who had experienced this you know it's wonderful that it, it wins awards it's wonderful that so many people are reading this book and loving the book but what do the people have to say and one of the most curious and spiritually unexpected responses that the book has gotten is that people come up to me all the time and say this book was the last book that my grandmother read before she died. I hear it all the time. It's said with, you know, it sounds perhaps very tragic and, and maybe even morbid, but they say it with gratitude and a deep sense of closure because pe these people had suffered so much, had often not spoken of it, had not felt validated in the larger society and that this book at the end of their life, hearing and seeing that other people's story, those who'd gone through what they had gone through, was here in a book, told in a way that covered the breadth of the experience that they'd had, gave them closure, gave them a sense of belonging, gave them a sense of meaning at the last stages of their life. Well, you write in the book that you're, obviously you're not the only writer to give this name, the Great Migration, to this, to this history, but to the people you interviewed, it was the first time they'd heard that they belonged to something that had a name like that, uh, that yeah. lived in history like that. When I was meeting people for the you know, casting call, if I said Great Migration, I was not going to get anywhere. They didn't view themselves as part of any great wave. Interestingly enough, because of the fact that they had always been lumped together into this one group, this marginalized, lower caste in the South, they did not want to be viewed as a mass group of anything. They wanted to be recognized for the agency that they had used in escaping a situation that was untenable. Also, upon arrival, they had been scapegoated and stereotyped and viewed, you know, as as lesser than by the northerners that they met. You know, they were these country folk who had just come straight from the field, or at least that's what many people perceived them as being. And so this was they did not like the idea of being grouped with another name that would would make them feel lesser than and so they didn't recognize the great migration but they recognized any description of getting out of the south and that that's what they responded to
funded this for 15 years? How did you live? <laughs> That's a great question, too. Professorships. Yes. One, one yes. strategy, One clearly. of them was, yes, I took, I took on professorships. I, I, I taught at Emory. I was on leave, but I worked on and off for, for the times I got a Guggenheim. Uh, I had I had an advance, but 15 years is a long time for any one source of, in of, of income to last. Savings as well. I mean, I just you know, I, you asked the most difficult uh, moment or the the the, ta the time I was perhaps most down and concerned was you know, of course, when they passed away. But also, when you, when I was in year nine, you know, and thinking it's been nine years, and I still. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not there yet. I do not have what I need. I'm not where I need to be. I have not gotten all that. It just took a long time. You know, this book, I started working on this book before Google existed. That's shocking, isn't it? So you couldn't, I w this was an era when, you know, newspapers were not digitized. So that meant going to the library and going through microfilm. I mean, it's going to be, you know, 10 years from now, I think students will be saying, what is microfilm? Maybe they're saying it already. But this was really the old fashioned way that this had to be done. That's one reason it took as long as it did. Did it traumatize you? Are you going to ever attempt I, another I, book? I, I was always traumatized <laughs> by microfilm. <laughs> the flapping is what gets me. <laughs> Hi, um, I have two questions. The first is, so after all of these years and in interviews, how did you, A, organize your notes? Like, what was your process? And then the second question is, when did you know it was actually time to sit down and write and that you had the material? And then when you did, what was that process like? I, all of the interviews with the 30 main people were, so, were transcribed. So that meant that I could do a search for the people. I had extensive files on my hard drive for, you know, there's an entire you know, uh, section, many, 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 many uh, notes and transcribed discussions with Ida Mae, for example, and Robert and George in particular. The, as I'd indicated, the essential structure in which I was going to start with one, move to the other, and then the third in the same uh, state of being that they happened to be in at that moment was, was, was uh, what allowed me to be able to make my way through telling the story, uh, following the chronology. You, you just have this moment where you have so much in you that you're ready to begin working on something. You be, well, I'm, I'm taking notes all the time and I'm always taking a stab at phrasings and paragraphs and things that might work. I view myself as a quilt maker in the ways that I go about my work. I have little pieces of, of stuff that I'm gathering that will ultimately make the final quilt. And so I had, you know, string, I had description, I had a particular uh, metaphor that might come to mind. I'm constantly you're constantly writing and reporting at the same time. When something comes to me, I'm putting it down and I've got, and I know when it's really good when it's written either really, really big and sloppy or really, really small because I don't have a lot of space and I put a star beside it and that becomes a piece of the quilt that I'm going to ultimately put together. So that's one part of it. And then there came a time when I felt I needed to get something on the page, uh, particularly after Dr. Foster's passing. And so the very first thing that was written in the book, the very first thing I wrote was not the beginning. I very rarely write the beginning anyway. I, that's always the last thing I usually do. And it wasn't the ending, which is usually what I end up doing. It was Dr. Foster's journey. That was the first thing that I wrote because I felt that was the driving force of the book. That was the goal that I'd had all along. I wanted to create 
a nonfiction version of The Grapes of Wrath. I wanted you to be in the on the train with them. I wanted you to be in the car with them. If this was gonna get done in the ways that I had envisioned it, then I needed to make sure that that was absolutely solid because that was the heart and spine of what I was seeking to do. And once I had that written, then I, that gave me uh, confidence and gave me assurance that this actually could be done. And one of the things that would always be a point of, of anxiety was it had no title. And I didn't have a title for the longest time. I didn't have a title. Sometimes I would just sit down and I would say, today I will come up with a title. And I would go the various, the various uh, hymns and various blues lyrics and all kinds of things to try to come up with one. It wasn't working. And I uh, ended up, this was you know, toward obviously the tail end of all of this, I ended up, uh, yeah, I had read uh, Black Boy slash American Hunger by Richard Wright um, many times. That's also a foundational work to see the world through their eyes and uh, I found myself you know going over it again and just sort of flipping through the the uh, end notes of the current day version and I I saw within the end notes that the story of what he had originally wanted and what had happened with that book he wrote his autobiography and the Book of the Month Club, the ladies of the Book of the Month Club, did not like the second half. The first half talked about the experiences, the fear, the terror he had suffered in the South. The second half was about the sense of alienation and rejection that he experienced in the North, and the Book of the Month Club did not like the second half. So that forced him to have to, if he was going to get this adopted by them, he was going to have to let go of the second half and figure out a new ending. And so what he did was he had to write at the last minute something, some way to close out what was ultimately going to be changed from what he wanted it to be called American Hunger and into Black Boy. When we buy this book, it's how he wanted it to be. But in the end notes of it, it describes what that, that what the ending that he had been forced to come up with at the last minute had been. And it was in that ending that he makes reference to the warmth of other suns. He makes reference to uh, his, his experience of making this decision. I can tell you what he said. He said, I was leaving the South to fling myself into the unknown. I was taking a part of the South to transplant in alien soil to see if it could grow differently, if it could drink of new and cool rains, bend in strange winds, respond to the warmth of other suns, and perhaps, just perhaps, to bloom. And when I saw that in the end notes, I knew that that was going to be the epigraph, that was going to be the beginning, but it also contained the title. And that's what just fast-forwarded everything in completing the book. I hope you're going to donate that copy of your yes. book to, uh, to a library. I've nominated Columbia University uh, as the recipient. Uh, we've reached the end of our time. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thank you, Isabel Wilkerson, for speaking with our Columbia community back in May for the 20th anniversary of the Lucas Prizes. 
Listening to Isabel reading that poem at the end gave me goosebumps. Yeah. She is so amazing. Yeah, we're not worthy. <laughs> By the way, at the end, when Dean Call made a reference to her donating her book, what he was referring to was this extremely worn and dog-eared copy that she brought with her, and it's like her master reference copy, and it was filled with sticky notes and markers, and it was faded. I couldn't resist taking a picture of it, so you can see that on, on our site. A well-worn and much-loved copy. Yes, go take a look at it. And coming up next from us, we have a really exciting event with a special guest appearance. Yes, we opened our Film Friday series this past Friday with RBG, the documentary that was directed by our own Professor Betsy West and Julie Cohen, who was a J School grad, and Amy Antelis, who's the Executive Vice President of CNN. And then... A surprise visit from the justice herself. It was incredible. And lo and behold. Oye, 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 (laughs) as the moderator said. There she was. What a thrill for the students and everyone to, to have her in the room. That's amazing. All right. Well, then, until next time. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. The podcast was produced by a former J-School student, our producer, Sarah Wyman, and we have a new crop of DuPont fellows who will be assisting us this year, Christina Shaman and Sarah Jenks. So welcome. Our music is by Dylan Nowick, and our sound engineering today happened with the assistance of A.J. Mangone. Join us again next month for another episode of On Assignment.